right, hello everybody, how's it going? Um, basically, this is just an informal conversation about some of the themes that have come up over the course and uh, related to, obviously, the uh, these six kind of areas that we looked at. Um, just to give you a brief overview, of course, the whole course was trying to look at the question of what salvation is or what the cure is or what the type of desire is that is talked about within Christianity, the way of being in the world. So that these concepts aren't just kind of like a, a nice kind of empty sounding phrases, but we can actually put some meat to the bones. So that's kind of what I tried to do over the six weeks. And obviously the, the primary kind of metaphor was the three parts of the magic trick. Uh, the presentation of the sacred object, which in psychoanalysis is the lost object, the thing that actually doesn't exist, but we think exists, and that kind of like orients our lives to the disappearance of that object, which is weird because it's the disappearance of an object that doesn't exist, <laughs> to, um, to then the return of the, the object as a type of death dimension in reality itself. And how this is actually not a move away from Christianity or faith, but, but is actually the message that is embedded within the tradition. It's like the trajectory of the entire text. I think, uh, you know, I didn't talk about it too explicitly, but it was implicitly there that I wanted to kind of start with Adam and Eve in the garden as a type of eatable story, and then right to then the crucifixion and then resurrection as the kind of the, the three parts. And if, if we were to do a more biblical, exegesis um we could fit a lot more of the text into that journey i think but that was kind of the the creation crucifixion resurrection as that pledge turn and prestige so who wants to start with kind of questions or comments or thoughts just far ahead let's make it a free-for-all all right pete i'll start and uh, my question is more contextual than content because I, you know, I've read your books, I've heard you say it a lot. I think your, your experience of conversion, if you will, at 17, in which you, know, you radically burned things and threw them away and told your parents <laughs> you're, you're, who you're going to be. And, um, and, and I can relate to a lot of that, but what I'm trying to remember, and maybe you said it, and maybe it's in one of your books, but what brought you to pyrotheology? In other words, if you were on that track, what was the event, process, person that began or actually made a change toward your thinking toward what you now present? Yeah, I mean, I want to say that it was the very conversion experience itself that set me on the course, even though I went five years within an evangelical charismatic church, that my experience of of conversion, and by the way, I had, did have, have no academic background to speak of, went to a terrible school, came out with no qualifications at 16 years old, um, mucked around for a lot of years, and um, was kind of like a going nowhere fast. Um, but I, I didn't have an, any intellectual uh, uh, kind of language, any language to understand what had happened to me in my conversion. Um, uh, I actually never even, I never believed in God when I was young until, you know, this conversion. And it's not that I disbelieved in God. I was probably like a Canadian 
You know, they say about Canadians, it's not like they just don't think about it. You know, I was kind of that type of person. I wasn't smart enough to have a, a, a rejection of God or I just didn't think anyone believed in God. I think I, I just, just didn't make sense to me. Um, and then I had the conversion and the conversion itself was an expression of everything I'm talking about weirdly, you know, like you mentioned it, it's, it was a unplugging from a political, cultural, religious system. It was a sense of nothing being added in terms of beliefs, but rather a type of freedom from a kind of all of the pursuits that I had. And it was what Kierkegaard would call the dizziness of freedom. It was like, I could be anything, I could do anything. And then I had five years, let's say five years. I'm retroactively saying five, it probably was more, but I like to make it less. <laughs> but say five years of, um, of kind of understanding that experience in the confessional, evangelical, charismatic language. And I was fully on board with that. But I kind of was and wasn't, because as soon as I discovered that there were other ways to interpret, like I, I, I had freedom to kind of like explore a wider vocabulary, a wider understanding, then that was the journey towards what I do now. So my answer kind of is like, I think it was always, this makes sense to me because it was my existential experience. My conversion experience was very much this unplugging from the sacred object um, and taking responsibility and all of that stuff. Uh, but then it was only in my 20s when I started to study philosophy and I started my own group called ICON that I started to develop a language. And just very quickly as well on that, I kind of developed a practice almost before a language. So again, I was kind of like, you think I started the Last Supper, for example, before I, while I was still in a, in a charismatic church. And I think that the Last Supper was a more radical thing than I was. And I discovered that a few times. I set up groups that were kind of further out than me. I did a thing called the Siren Project with my friend Adam Turkington. And, um, uh, it was definitely much more radical than either me or Adam were at that stage. Um, and then it gradually, I was able to start finding a language to make sense of that experience. Does that give a, like a basic kind of overview? You want to follow up on that? Well, the only follow up I would be is, you know, yeah, I think in reflection, and I suppose maybe there's a little bit of Zizek in that too, where you go backwards, whatever you have become is already present. <laughs> it's just kind of like getting caught up to you. Because uh, I, I think that would be true, and I, I, hearing your story really helps me to further look back on my history as well. But specifically, at some point, you, I don't want to say rejected scripture as authoritative, you know, like the evangelicals tend to do. You know, they tend to worship the Bible as much as read it. And so, you know, I don't know whether that was an experience for you or not, but what, what point did you maybe embrace who you were? Maybe that's the question I'm asking. At what point did you say, hey, this is me and I'm going to press ahead. Maybe it was your, your experiences in some of the, um, um, the uh, transformative art that you didn't call it that at the time, but you were doing it. Maybe that was it. But I'm just curious still to see, I mean, there came a point where you obviously became more of a radical theologian. I don't know if you use that term as much about yourself as, as we would perhaps, but uh, that process really intrigues me because I think I'm, I'm doing that, I've been there, whatever. Yeah, and, and you know, the funny thing, not that I want to play word games, but I think it is, it's important in terms of, to understand my thinking that I kind of never felt that I, you know, rejected or kind of like 
you know, went away from like the quote unquote authority of scripture. But I know what you mean by that, but I wanted to kind of interrogate it in my thinking is, so Thomas Altizer, um, you know, he says, for example, he is a doctrinal death of God theologian. And what he means is he's saying basically he got there partly through the Bible, you know? Um, so I, I take the Bible, for me, for me, the issue is the conservatives take it very literally and liberals kind of take it metaphorically. And in that, in that framework, I'm very much more conservative, but in the sense of, I think I've used this example before, you've probably heard me say it, but like an analyst takes a dream seriously. Like when, when someone tells their, their, a dream to a psychoanalyst, the analyst doesn't say, well, did you really see a red bus or did you not or whatever. The analyst knows some parts of it are connected to what you saw, maybe what you read, what, you, what was on TV. But what, what they know for sure is that the dream is speaking about you in your subjectivity and your unconscious. And so in a way, I take the Bible like that. I'm like, the reason why it had such resonance and, and continues to have such resonance is because it touches on something incredibly primal about our subjectivity. And so weirdly, I kind of go, right, taking the text ultimately seriously weirdly led me in this direction where I saw in the text itself this journey. And that's the difference between me and a few of my friends. Some of my friends, they walked away. And uh, one of my really good friends, Phil Harrison, who is in the same position as me now, he basically would be in a similar position. But he, he used to say to me, like, why did you not just walk away? And the difference was I thought the walking away was in the text. <laughs> the walking away wasn't from the text, it was within the text. At least that's the claim of radical theology. Now, but you're, and then you're asking, and when did I maybe explicitly but say this week? I do remember one point, and I, this is just a symbolic point, but I remember talking to my pastor called Paul Reed, lovely guy, who, and we were chatting, and I, I realized, I said, I, I think I believe about 90% what he believes. He just believes it. And I kind of, and I said, oh, that's the difference. The difference is, at, the, at that time, I was like, oh, this, this, this is an icon that's helping me enter into something. So the beliefs are important to me, but the weirdly, I find myself more in common to someone with different beliefs than people of my own. We've talked about that in the course. Um, and that was symbolically an important point where I was like, oh, I'm in a different place now from, from the, what, the what and the how. That was maybe the first time where I actually explicitly acknowledged it. And then my pastor asked me if, if I would make Icon part of the church, the group that I had, because it was quite successful. And they were like, oh, we could make it part of a church. And I realized that what we were doing wasn't that like an evangelistic project for the youth or something. It was something radically different. And, um, you know, he was offering money and resources, but I think we ultimately were like, no, we can't go that direction. So that, I, and I, when I was probably in my early 20s, 24 maybe when I was, when I got that. But it was only in my mid-30s that I feel that I could articulate clearly. Um, and by the way, one other thing, this is anecdotally, is all along that journey, there were these people who supported me because I was unemployed for most of that time. I was on unemployment benefit for eight years. I was not working. Um, but I lived off the generosity of people. People were very generous. And a lot of those people, I'm amazed at them. I was talking nonsense half the time and half the time wasn't making sense. But some of those people in Belfast were gracious enough and to go, I think you're onto something. And I think if we support you, 
eventually this will make sense. <laughs> and it was because of that small group of people who somehow said, this is going to one day make sense that I was able to kind of like continue the journey. Right. Uh, but uh, do you want to follow up on that? Is there any, uh, to, any precision on that? No. Now I'll let somebody else ask some questions. That was kind of just the contextual train I was wanting to hear. Thank you. So <clears throat> I have a question that's sort of specific to the, th can you guys hear me? Okay. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, so in terms of the theory and the, the idea of like contradiction being a generative um, principle, uh, I agree, but I'm, I'm, I want to play with this a little bit. Um, what is the genesis of, um, let me look at my notes. Um, you describe the generative contradiction at the heart of the nucleus of being as lack and what what made you come to lack as the component that creates that sort of like percolation of like I get it and that but I'm mm, yeah little, yeah 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 and you know there's different words for it so the reason why I landed on lack is um, partly because I was being very very influenced by the psychoanalytic psychoanalytic tradition. And in Lacanian psychoanalysis, one of the preferred terms for Lacan is, is lack. Um, and he plays on the difference between lack and loss. Uh, and so, and so, so it was one of my preferred terms. But I don't think there's any significant difference between the word lack and say the word sin. Sin has a, mor a moral dimension, so I, I kind of avoided that. So when people hear sin, they would often immediately go to a, to a moral thing. But I do know some people say, well, lack sounds, it almost sounds moral as well. It almost sounds like, um, you know, we're missing something that we shouldn't be missing. So there are other terms that could be equally good or better, but lack is definitely more just for historical reason and psychoanalytic theory, the notion of lack is, just one of the terms for the rupture in the real. Okay, so rupture is another language or fissure is it would that be a good term. Um, even the word dialectics can potentially be a better term. But do you want to like is there a, is there something about that word that yet yeah, doesn't resonate with you? Well I just I sort of kind of bump up against a con well not a contradiction but an interesting insight when I was trying to think about okay so um, lack uh, you know, as the sort of the percolating substance, um, the generative contra the generative contradiction is the way I'm thinking about it. Uh, but then I was thinking of so, now, but that sort of I was like, you know, kind of, um, it's sort of it's sort of like an eros concept, in the sense that, um, and that makes sense to me. But it's different from the generative quality, uh, the gener the contradict yeah, the the generative contradiction, yeah, the generative contradiction that creates art is different than this sort of tension that sort of creates a kind of motivation, and so that's where I'm I'm thinking like, so is this tension a a component of a greater theory, or is it really sort of like the nucleus of what 
creates this kind of creative energy in all the different directions. Right. And I might be losing everyone in the question, but. No, I mean, that makes sense to me. If, let me feed back what I think what you're asking is, yeah, is whenever I say I use the word lack or we use the word lack, is that descriptive of the fun, something fundamental in reality out of which all of the other antagonisms arise? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and I would say, yeah, that's, that's how I use the word lack. I mean, nothing, the nothing, nothingness is also a good term for it, but that's what I'm trying to describe is, is all of the contradictions, like, for example, evolution, which is the contradiction in biological reality, or democracy, the contradiction within political life. Um, I would say all of these, and I could be wrong, but this is the claim, yeah. The claim is that all of these are expressions of this divide, this not at oneness of things in respect, different respective fields. I mean, that's what Hegel, I think, is saying, is he's saying that, that he, and he starts with kind of like um, consciousness that, that we are not who we think we are. And then he just kind of like builds it out and builds it out until you, he tries to prove that all of these minor and all of these contradictions within different fields are a reflection of this fundamental one. But funnily enough, for Lacan, he's primarily talking about the unconscious, so the divided subject. But as a philosopher, and, and, and Lacan is very philosophically minded, but the philosophers like Shizek or Zupanchek uh, are basically taking Lacan and saying that Lacan and Freud's insights are a reflection of reality itself. So this might be like a complete divergent sort of like line of thinking, but okay. So what if we, and, and sometimes I'm just standing in my blind spot, so that's fine too. But if you think of the divided subject in just in like a biological, like, yes, I do think that the contradiction is everywhere and can be like all the way down to an atom with protons and neutrons, like, yeah. Um, but we have a conscious and an unconscious mind. And in and of itself, that's like a divided contradiction, sort of, yes, no, maybe. Yeah, just to clarify that, like, if you're saying, because the difference between Jung and Freud is Jung would say there's, there's like, there are two substances, whereas Freud yeah. would say that there's, there's just the mind and then the cut, and the cut is the unconscious. So it's not like the unconscious is, it's like two things. It's one thing that's cut. Anyway, does that, does that change what you're going to say, or do you want to? Well, in relation to drive. Right. Yeah. which is unconscious, is an unconscious process. Um, and then, so, you know, you have the conscious mind that wants something, desire, and then drive is in the unconscious mind. So that's, there's like a, right there, there's a tension um, and it's generative. So I think my question is related to managing drive, yes, but Wait, I, I lost my train of thought, so. Yeah, no, this is central, this is all very good. And the, the thing about the mind, and just coming back to the unconscious you're talking about there, is the, the difference between, so for, for Freud, pretty much, like either, either the mind is like yin and yang symbol, so it's dark and light, there's the two things. That's more just what Jordan Peterson talks about, like the, the, the balance, the union balance. Yeah, I, I don't see that, I don't agree with that, but yeah, go on. Oh yeah, oh yeah, or the, the basically there is the mind and then the cut and that's the unconscious. So and then that's dri drive is generated by the not at oneness of the mind with itself. Oh, that's very um, yeah. Okay. 
but is that is that what you're driving at or is that help drive so drive generated as a non at oneness with the mind presupposes that lack is that a, that a sense of I don't have is creating the drive or or there is a secret is creating the drive and so I think I'm actually just sort of stuck on the idea of is the I don't have or there's a secret I don't know the answer to as related to drive is is that an absolute in itself sort of yeah, yeah, I would say if you mean by an absence that yeah, it's it's not something that can ever be overcome. It, it, from the Freudian perspective, that it can't be overcome. From actually a Jungian perspective, it I think it can be overcome by balance and order. So you can kind of bring the unconscious and conscious into a balance, um, and that's why it's all masculine and feminine, darkness and light. And if you can get these dimensions of your psyche into balance. Um, you know, then, then that's, you can live a, a relatively satisfied life. But for Freud, there is no balance. There is just a, there is a perpetual imbalance that can't be overcome. So when you talk about orbiting around lack and working with it because it can't be overcome, can you unpack that just a little bit? I, well, Do you think it's it's a constant that the mechanism of lack and prohibition are generating all of the like the impetus in any direction? Or do you think because I'm thinking about art and I feel like art arises out of an inspiration. It's, it comes from I think a different sort of and that's not the same drive, but this is where I get a little bit not stuck, but this is where I start to play with it. Yeah. Um, well, here, I don't know if this is, this is something that happened last night to me, and I don't know if it's connected or not, but we'll find out. But I was obsessed with this TV series called Person of Interest, right? <laughs> it's really rubbish, but I love it. <laughs> it's great. And I watched from episode one, uh, season one, right up to episode 13. And I realized that I stopped two episodes before the end. And this was like weeks ago, I stopped. I literally watched them obsessively right up until there were two episodes to go. And then I stopped. And I was just thinking last night, like, why did I stop? And one of my theories is, well, partly because I want loss to be part of my experience of the, of the episode. So if I watch it right to the very end, I mean, I'll probably will one day, you know, um, but then it's finished. But while there's two episodes to go, I get the satisfaction of I really enjoyed the series but there's also a sense of lack that's within it, which is I haven't completed the series. And um, that is, I think, in, the, in art and in literature, it's kind of, I don't, I don't know, did you watch, uh, I mentioned, um, I think I recommended, there's a Todd McGowan video on fantasy, just, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's, I recommend it, but he uses the example of Blade Runner, where he says at the end of Blade Runner, when the uh, detective sees the, um, if you remember, it's a little um, unicorn. Um, the detective dreams of unicorns, and that basically it's a little hint that the detective is a replicant. Um, and basically a hint that then he's not going to live for very long, and uh, you know everything he knows is basically a fantasy. So at the very end, the satisfaction of him completing everything is tinged with the dissatisfaction of a little bit of loss 
of a little bit of like the happiness has a bit of unhappiness in it. And, um, and Todd McGowan talks about that as basically the analytic cure in a way. And he contrasts it with Star Wars, where at the beginning of Star Wars, you have the loss, the empires attacking the ship, but you end with the, with the medal ceremony and it's, it's all finished. And we don't really remember the medal ceremony because it doesn't have much libidinal interest, but we all remember that cruiser attacking the, the rebels. So I'm just saying that this connects all, but in terms of art, it's like, and the end thing is like, there's a certain satisfaction, a certain drive, but for someone like Todd McGowan is, it has to always be tinged with a certain element of loss. That's where the creative dimension is. But by the way, Deleuze would totally disagree. And you might be more intrigued by Deleuze, who, who's much more about the exuberance of reality and the, the kind of, there is no lack, all there is is overabundance. And um, Deleuze, uh, uh, do, do you want me to spell them? I can't. Just, like, you can phonetically like say it and then we'll be able to Google. E-L-E-U-Z-E, I think Deleuze. Um, he's a nightmare to read, but you'll find Deleuzeans who are kind of like, kind of better, but he is, he's as difficult to read as Lacan. But, but it's basically Lacan and Deleuze are almost like the, the enemies, because Deleuze is all about superabundance and um, a lack of lack, and uh, celebrates schizophrenia and psychosis. So is it kind of a, a yeah, it's a, he has a thing called schizoanalysis. It's not like a clinical schizoids, but it's kind of like this overabundant experience of reality. Um, and Lacan is very much for the neurotic, who experiences constant lack. Okay, cool. To link this back to the reading group yesterday, could lack be linked to estrangement? Ah, okay. So, um, yeah, so in terms of the reading group, uh, it's talking about, yeah, we're looking at uh, Paul Tillich's essay, Two Types of Philosophy of Religion, and estrangement is this experience of not being cognizant of the reality that we are immersed in. Um, this is the, 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 that's a good question because the, the critique I would have of Tillich is that um, he's still playing in the field of getting rid of lack. That, 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 so estrangement and lack don't quite overlap that um estrangement is almost like the not realizing that we are not lacking that we are we are part of the whole and we're and that's the element of Tillich that I think Tillich's brilliant but that's the element of Tillich that I think needs to be critiqued um but does that make do you want to talk about it what your what connections you were making between lack and estrangement well it was literally just the fact that we were talking about estrangement being about separation and lack being about this gap that is an emptiness and it made me think of I was talking to a friend of mine from church uh, yesterday and I was trying to explain to her like courage to be and those whole things and her reaction to it was well of course because at the fall we developed this um you know sin and so of course we've got fear of death and anxiety and meaninglessness because as soon as then we accept Christ and everything goes away and it's all fine again. Yeah. Um, I was just trying to say, mm, no, it's, it's more fundamental than that. Um, it's more basic than that. Eat and, but trying to get, I think, someone who is immersed in that culture away from this idea that there was a point where we weren't lacking 
and we can get back to it. Um, that is a near impossible place to talk to someone from when they're thinking along those lines and you're thinking, well, no, you just have to cope with it. <laughs> you just have to learn to live with it and like it and love it and find the joy and passion that it generates. Um, and isn't that actually Tillich? Tillich is Tillich's more more radical than the traditional view. Actually, yeah, because Tillich and the courage to be is actually so. This is just to give Tillich his um his due here. Actually, that he is saying exactly what you're saying, which is that that for him, kind of reconnection with the ground of being always has lack in it by necessity, and because because the ground of being is the foundation from which we think, not that which we think to. So actually you're right that, that there is a difference between the lack in Tillich and the lack in Lacan, but there's actually a fundamental lack in them both. And they're kind of in the same field. And you're right, so what Lacan is saying, sorry, Tillich is saying, um, you can never overcome this sense of like contingency and doubt and unknowing and ambiguity because you never think to the absolute. You always think from the absolute, but every time you doubt, the doubt is affirming truth. Every time you question truth, you're affirming truth. So, so yeah, Tillich is attempting to say that lack and satisfaction are intimately intertwined and so is radical. So is the kind of radical theology, parotheology. It might cash out a little bit different, but sometimes those differences aren't as important as we like to think. So yeah, yeah, that's good. Anybody else want to jump in? So one of my questions uh, in all this, so you know, very intellectual, philosophical sort of stuff, is the, you know what are the practices that a community you know can engage in to kind of live out this joy in the ambiguous because yeah. um, when i sort of think about communities they tend to always be based around something right uh, they kind of create their identity in what they believe um, or what they are promoting um, so I'm, tr I'm struggling to envision like, well, what does community look like, yeah. you know, in celebrating this yeah. ambiguity? Yeah. I mean, my, my, some of my examples that I like to, to go to are Burning Man. Um, not because I think Burning Man in its, in its actuality is necessarily radical or not. I've actually never been. But, um, but, but because it's centered around the shared burning of an effigy, and also there's a temple in the Burning Man where you put all of these things and at the end of the festival, you burn, burn the temple. And so it's symbolic of a community that is, that, that is um, brought together through a shared loss, not through a shared set of beliefs necessarily, but a shared kind of sense of loss. AA is my other, obviously, favorite example. Um, and then of course, I wanna connect that with the Christian community that is centered around the Last Supper which is a supper that commemorates a loss, a death, the death of God. Now, so what does that look like in practice? You know, in one way, it's like, it's like um, the ending to Blade Runner. Whereas, so in Blade Runner, the ending has loss built into its satisfying end. 
right? It has a satisfying end like any movie, and yet you're left with, right, the idea that he's probably a replicant. He probably only has a few years to live. Um, so in the same way, like, if I'm talking about the Sunday morning church, this is about giving a God who, who has room for doubt, unknowing, and suffering, and where we can find within the hymns that are sung, or the rituals that are done, or the sermons that are spoken, a self-alienated God, a God who we want to be like, who is self-alienated. So that's my rule of church, is actually that you go in wanting God to be everything, wanting God to be the Star Wars happy ending, to fix everything. And then what you find within the liturgical structure every week is a God who helps you face your suffering and says that your suffering is okay, and that your suffering is actually um, is what connects you with the suffering of Christ. So actually, a conservative theologian like Jürgen Moltmann has this, you know, the crucified God. It's like we, the, what the unique thing about the Christian God for him is that God suffers, God dies, and therefore in your suffering, you relate to God. So that's one, one way of what the church does. In our own lives, it's psychoanalysis, psychotherapy can be a way of experiencing this, and also the decentering practices like the Last Supper, Atheism for Lent. Um, these are practices, again, that are designed to get you to enjoy like your lack of knowing. So like the Omega course gets you to question or see Christianity from multiple perspectives, but not so that you despair and go, oh crap, I don't know what I think, but so that you find enjoyment and being part of the never-ending conversation. Um, but do you want to come back to me on that? Is like, because and pinpoint me even more if you're uh, if you'd like to kind of like expand on this issue. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely lots there. Uh, you know, one of the things that I have tried to consider is, uh, you know, as you form a community around some of these ideas, you know, the very celebration of, of doubting and being uncertain means that uh, you, you can just kind of like, it's like when you use the word pyrotheology, I think it's like continually burning itself up. Uh, and so then you end up questioning your own ideas again and again and again. And it just seems like this uh, has a hard time then producing a lasting community uh, yeah. um, because it kind of, it eats itself up. Yeah. Um, and so then that is challenging. I go, well, you know, um, you, you want a community that can kind of last. Yeah. And th that is, I think you're right that, um, these types of communities that are based around a shared loss are doing do the end i think more often sometimes well sometimes badly but there is maybe less of a i mean i even was experimenting with one year churches for a while like still like the idea weirdly of going like actually some communities are there for a while i like psychoanalysis you do it for a few years so some communities we want to last forever like our family and some communities we go they pass right? Even school friends or, or therapy. Um, but you, so sometimes people hold on the community in a very unhealthy way. Like if someone does analysis, 
too long. Sometimes you have to go, right, has that become a new crutch? Uh, so, uh, but mm-hmm. I, I've seen a lot of these communities end, you're right. Um, a lot of them have ended well. They've just kind of gone, oh, you know, I think we, we did what we are here to do. And the friendships remain, but the community doesn't. Um, that's what happened to Icon after 11 years. A lot of people are still very close friends. The community ended. It's actually the other way around often in churches where the church stays, but if you leave, you, you lose your friends. You know, this is the opposite. Is you deconstruct the church, but you keep all the friendships. <laughs> um, I quite like that. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so it, it is, but the, the, the description that you're saying, yeah, where you're constantly in movement, right? There's no end, there's this dialectic. How do you have a consistent community around a shared loss? I think it's possible, I think that's what the church should be. Um, but you're right, it's, it's, not, it's a shift in focus. You're not unified by your shared belief. You're unified by... Uh, your shared struggle. Um, yeah, uh, and so, yeah, I don't know, I'm just maybe affirming what you're saying and kind of good, but, but, and yet, and also adding that it's not necessarily a bad thing that communities do end. That's, um, and uh, I, I actually, if, I, if someone's been involved in paratheology for too long, I sometimes start to want to ask them why, because I go like, oh, I think this is very useful for a time, but if you've been doing it for 10 years, then I start to have to ask, are you, is it a crutch? But yeah, I don't know if I've got. Yeah, I think I think what you're asking is such an important question. <laughs> it's like, and I wish I was doing more community work. You know, I don't at the moment. I don't have a a, a parallel community at the moment. I think this comes sort of back to what I was thinking about in terms of like an organizing principle mm-hmm. of a generative, like create, you know, creative being loss and in community. I think that. Um, I think that there can be a really good community of falling apart and putting back together again, but I don't think that uh, being unified, like, I, I don't know that, like, loss, I think, is a part, a function of, my sense is that it's a function of, like, my note, what do I have here? Uh, at the nucleus of contradiction, would lack really be that generative, or is lack just one of the many expressions of the fractal pattern that makes up a kind of thumbprint of God. And so that that's the reason why I'm sort of like picking loss, like the, the um, what creates drive, I'm picking it apart from what, what is sort of a creative imperative, which is just a little bit wrong, but I think might be just as innate. Um, and if so, that's a slightly different process, but I think it's, a, it's I think that process is a little, is, is, is easier to sort of create a creative like um falling apart and putting back together again like exploring searching kind of a um an orientation towards like but with a knowledge and an acceptance of lack as a crucial component yeah yeah i think yeah i think what you're saying is very good like the term fractal as well that's probably a, a very good term for this type of experience um and, and the thing i want to to add to this um, as well is that that for Hegel and for this process, it's like at first the pulling apart and the putting back together again is quite a, a big deal. Especially the first time you do it, really, you know, as a teenager or as in your 20s, whatever, the first time you do it, it's a big deal. But Hegel wants to get to the point where 
you aren't pulling apart and pushing back, putting back together again. You're kind of, you're at a point where you're just very comfortable with, with the not at oneness of the world. And that brings you to a certain peace. There's a certain, so like the type of community that's doing this, I don't imagine it as a community that's constantly questioning itself at all, but, I, but rather a community that understands the, let's call it the, at the quantum level of experience and reality, there is a type of superpositioning. There's a type of contradiction. And that's what generates desire, drive, um, meaning. And it does mean that we are always open to change, but it doesn't mean that we're constantly doing that. Like a relationship that's constantly, you know those relationships where I've got friends who all they want to do is talk about how they're changing and developing and growing. I am the opposite. I, I don't know what that means. My friend, one of my friends jokes about me that I've never grown as a person because I don't know what the term means. Because like, he's from LA, he's always talking about how to improve his life. And, I, I, and, uh, and sometimes it's like, uh, like, that's not what I think. It doesn't necessarily, I mean, the people who enjoy that, that's fine. But I don't think it's a constant, it doesn't have to be a constant kind of like, improvement 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 and, and if anything it's it's grace it's the opposite it's the the kind of like ha huh, you know I'm, I'm never going to get there you know but i'm not so much i'm thinking more depth dimension than i am in the that's less in the way of um like breaking and coming together and more in the way of depth dimension as and it's not so much like a self-help keep getting better sort of a thing it's just a deeper into yes yes and facilitating that yeah. in a way that's just, that is actually somewhat self-sustainable. Yes. It, it, yeah. Because I, I, I'm hearing in you, there's something like a, there's something that, that's this kind of like, there's a, there's a thread that you're, you're pulling up. And I just want to make sure we get there because I think it's really interesting. There's something that, that you're saying that I think needs to be heard. So I'm kind of like, I mean, we'll probably circle back on it a few times, but I do think yeah, I'm trying to figure it out as we go along. So it'll, that's how I, it'll just sort of, there's something and I know that there's something and I'm just trying to, I'm trying to pull on it too. Great. Well, yeah, let's keep circling back then because there's something that I can see here in you. So it'll hopefully become clearer and clearer. Very good. Oh, by the way, I've noticed there's lots of chat. Any, anybody in the chat box asking questions who can't talk? I don't know. Is anybody keeping an eye on the chat box? Uh, We're just chatting about what's being said. Okay, all right, that's good. One thing I would say, just to push back slightly, is that you said that you're not very active in the community at the moment. And my suggestion to you would be that you have an incredibly active community around you at the moment, but what you've done is you've taken a step back to avoid becoming um, the leader who has to lead um, and to be the leader who refuses to lead and to avoid being seen as the linchpin to it all but instead you're letting these various little things start up around you so that they have their own uh, impetus and motivation and um reason to continue just to you know put a positive spin on what you said i like that i'm going to write that down actually and use that that's my justification for being busy there because that you're the one who's doing the work um, and i'm very excited about this it's like you and a couple of others andy as well are 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 taking this stuff and doing your own groups and I'm so excited about that. So um, yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe that's where the life will be in terms of, it won't be a physical thing in LA for me. It will be 
encouraging more online stuff. Yeah. Um, and if anybody doesn't know, I'm sure most of you know, but uh, Kate does Coffee and Concepts and uh, is committed to kind of doing that on a regular basis throughout the year. I'm, I'm going to do it once a month. And then, uh, you know, not absolutely, you know, not, it's not written in blood. You don't have to, <laughs> I won't hold you to it. But, uh, <laughs> but it seems to be being very successful at the moment. So, nice work. Hey, if I could chime in just really quickly. Uh, I came in a little late. Uh, but uh, uh, just uh, quickly, Peter, thank you very much for the course. It's been very interesting for me. Also, for following um, in, uh, in the Discord, everyone's chatting. I'm because I'm coming from a very different perspective. I'm coming from the atheist sec kind of a secular community. But I'm very, very interested in the decentering practices you have because of the challenges that I see, especially out here in Finland. And hello, Kate. <laughs> but, uh, but because this is a country that is overwhelmingly secular and it's a culture that um, doesn't naturally come together like let's say a Mediterranean culture so people tend to be very very separate and uh, and I feel that there's and in a way people are struggling with the lack and and looking for something else and there as at this is kind of like a comment also to Brad that, that here it's really difficult to kind of form a community to talk about these kinds of issues because there's, there's just very, uh, in that sense, for the overall community, there's a lot less um, uh, like uh, joining a church or, or being in somewhere. Of course, there are, of course, Kate, you're a good exception out here in Helsinki. But, uh, but in that sense, it, uh, it's very, very interesting to listen to everybody's uh, discussions on, and, and how, how this idea can wonderfully bring you into a place of, of challenging where you are and, and and uh and hopefully in that sense I, I don't know deepening deepening uh life in in whatever way it has so so thank you for everyone i i'm learning a lot more than than i have probably to be able to contribute at this moment but uh but it's been uh, it's been really uh, a great month and a half so thank you oh thank you and, and just to, to come back to what you're saying yeah I, like i want to see what we're doing here as because for me uh, as you know this is kind of like a this doesn't, this transcends the atheist theist kind of thing. This is about kind of like communities that can um, enter into and sustain and affirm the contradiction at the heart of reality. So what that looks like in Finland, obviously will be, I mean, I wish I was there in some ways, so that would be a fascinating challenge. Um, Belfast was not dissimilar. It's the, it's the Bible Belt of Europe. I mean, Northern Ireland's a bit of the Bible Belt of Europe, but still very secular in relation to America. So. Mm. Icon, we had that challenge of doing something that, that really genuinely appealed to people within the confessional church and people who haven't darkened the doors of it. And that's where the most exciting possibility is. And I mean, what it would look like in, in, in somewhere like where you're living is an interesting question to me. Would it look like group psychology or something like that? Yeah. Like, yeah. But it's like, I do want to see... Um, how this can happen in a way because i know i speak in very christianese partly because of that's the background as part of the the where i came to and partly because most of the people who engage in my work are coming from a christian perspective but that has a negative to it for like people like yourself and the your people that you know is like this type of language is off-putting and i don't think it needs to be in this language but someone like shizek is probably very popular 
um, among some people uh, in Finland. And so anyway, all I'm saying is I, I would love to chat with you more, but I think that I want to do a course where we talk about how we, how we do these groups in different places. So maybe we can talk about that at some point. Do you have, have you have, have, have you ever, have you encountered uh, Alan de Bonton's School of Life? That seems something kind of like, yeah. Funny. Uh, somehow it needs to be, uh, I, I myself have always been very fascinated with religion, even though I have not come from a religious background. And so in that sense, I'm not, I, I don't know, I, I feel very comfortable in, in religious language. But uh, I know so many people who aren't. And somehow, and then psychology itself has its own stigma because it, it of course came from a medical background so it uh it makes it challenging also for people to come like into kind of like a group therapy session they they uh yeah so finding that balance would be really challenging it'd be great you see the, the key for me and i don't think this is going to happen soon or maybe ever but here's here's the thought is like so reformations happen right very occasionally you know the orthodox catholic protestant right a reformation works whenever the language that is used by the confessional group so resonates with the wider community that it's like it's like revival it's a massive new movement it's so uh, it's like the titanic ship it's just a ship that sunk right it was a disaster but lots of ships sink but that ship had such symbolic value for years that it became more than it was so my claim is that is that radical theology um, could possibly be the next reformation and if it is what that means is the discourse will appeal to regular people and secular people it will be a new enough and different enough and pregnant enough discourse that people will will actually find life in a currency and um, but yeah, I think that's that you know that's going to be hundreds of years of, of work to get to that point but um, that's when you know it. So one example, which my friend Phil, I said my friend Phil Harrison, he's kind of where I am now, but one of the reasons is because I talked to him about Christology one day. I sat down and I said, here's my Christology. And I used the term Christology and I talked it through in deeply theological terms. And he said, oh, well, I'm a Christian. He says, that, that is, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And I've done that with a few people who have had that response. They're secular. They're not saying they're a Christian. It's that they believe in God. They're like, Oh God, yeah. I need, or one, a good friend of mine, she said, I have to become a Christian. And she's struggling to become a Christian. And what she, she means by it, because she's very smart, and she knows what, what that means is, I have to come to terms with the contradiction in reality. Mm -hmm. So my hope is that actually what we're developing here is a language that might have currency in, in beyond the confessional Christian. Great. <laughs> Just to come back round to a shameless advertising, one of the things that is working so fantastically well about Coffee and Concepts at the moment is that um, there's a guy called Raphael who's um, running it with me, and his background is atheist. Um, so he's coming at it from a completely unchurched perspective. He doesn't know any of the church stories, he doesn't know the Bible, he doesn't know any of it. And so I'm able to come at it from a more Christian perspective, he's able to bring more of a psychoanalysis um, and philosophy background to it. And so it um, produces this space that isn't inherently one or the other. 
and allows all of the conversation to kind of flow in it. At least that's our aim. I don't know how well it works for people who come. Um, but I just wanted to make sure that um, people realize that there are these spaces that we're making where it's not necessarily theological. And there are places that you can have these discussions that um, are around pyro terms. And I use pyro rather than pyrotheology because it, it's not necessarily about church or theology or Christianity. Yeah, no, that's very good. And that, that's my experience now of Wake more and more than my festival in Belfast, as more and more people come to it. And so there was a woman who was there last year and she was like, she said, I didn't even know you were religious. I didn't know. There's all these people who have gone to church. I didn't know. Like, I just listened to a couple of podcasts and, and went there. But what's beautiful about it, similar to Coffee and Concepts, is the, the lines are beginning to blur. And for me, that's always the sign of a significant movement when, when the, basically the, the battle lines that, that people think are like impossible to cross suddenly become completely like insignificant. And for me, when I started my work, it was atheist and theist. In America, people couldn't see how you could have a community that where that distinction wasn't important. And in fact, so much so that in America, people talk about uh, theists or what do they call it? Christians and atheists. They use the term because because Christian and theist is interchangeable. But now, increasingly, I see that people now more and more are understanding that that doesn't need to be an important distinction at all. So yeah, that's interesting. Like the same thing with Coffee and Concepts and Icon, or yeah. Anybody else want to jump in? Uh, yeah, so I have a related question maybe, but maybe just a, a little more uh, individual or humble, right? Like I, this course, uh, and I'll echo what Timo said, this course has been really helpful for me after having picked up uh, some of your work from some podcast appearances and things like that to get a good systematic overview um, has really helped me understand and, and name some of the processes that I think were kind of going on, uh, you know, in me anyway, like some of these terms like dialectic thinking um, and productive maladaptation have been really helpful to me, but I'm not a community leader. Um, I'm not an expert or, you know, a, a, a faith leader or a philosopher, uh, any of those things. Um, I am a, a parent. Um, I have some teenagers and some smaller children. Um, I don't, are there things that I can do to like help encourage some of these uh, thought patterns in my kids and my friends without forming, you know, a, a whole community um, with, you know, these various liturgies and things? Um, I don't know, just ways of living or ways of talking and questioning uh, to help develop that. And then also, is there any danger of of introducing this to people, maybe especially children's or adolescents, before somebody is r ready for that? Mm, I, uh, um, like, yes, that's huge. And, and I always start, when it comes to questions about young people, I always start by going, I neither have them nor have studied kind of ch child development in a serious way. Um, but I have talked to people who do know about that stuff. So um, I heard one guy say, uh, a guy called David Harvey, he's a, an intellectual, he, um, he did say that children think dialectically very naturally, like the, which you would expect if dialectics is the kind of the way reality works, you'd expect to find it everywhere. But he said that, you know, kids actually, you know, will bounce from one extreme to another and these opposites. And, and so you kind of go like that, actually we're trained into thinking causally 
which is totally fine. Causal thinking is very important, but causal thinking and dialectic thinking are just slightly different approaches. And I like that when I heard David Harvey say that I went, oh yeah, you don't have to train a kid to think dialectically, to go f to think of one extreme and then another extreme and how they're connected and the points kind of to these opposites. Kind of like, actually, that's probably the chaotic way that kids learn. And, uh, um, but th there are definitely, I mean, developmental phases, like your kids will think of you as a type of, you know, God in a way, like you supply everything, you, you, they're dependent on you, you can't help that. Um, and there will be a point when they realize you're just human and they have to realize that and they'll also push against you. They'll, you know, you've got teenagers, you're saying, so I'm sure you've experienced that a lot. But oh, yeah. Because like some, sometimes parents are going like, I, I don't want my kids to have to rebel against me the way I have to rebel against my parents. But in a way, kids will always have to, no matter. So it's not that you get the right beliefs and they won't rebel, but they can do it in a very healthy way. Uh, Rob Bell, for example, his kids, his relationship with his kids is wonderful. Like they're independent thinkers, they're, they think for themselves, but, you know, there's no extreme kind of like, you know, they, they all respect and love each other. It's very, very nice. So it can happen in different ways. But I guess eventually your kid's going to have to push against you. And of course, you let them do that. And um, all that to say, you know, from the psychoanalytic stuff I've read is like the most important thing about being a parent is you realize that you have these symbolic rules. You're everything to the kid. They learn it and then they question you and you allow them to question you and you allow them their space to rebel. And those are the most important things, not the beliefs as such, but, but whether they have space to differentiate. But I don't know, does anybody else have experience with kids? Any, any experts in that or even not experts, but more of an expert than me? <laughs> I'm not an expert, but I, um, a few years back, um, a friend of mine, his daughter was sort of hitting that it, like the adolescent age where it was time to rebel, but because of circumstances in the home, it wasn't really happening. And um, what we ended up talking about was creating almost like a controlled burn like allowing for the room for the rebellion in a controlled way, just so that that differentiation would happen. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a sense in which even like a knowledge of the mechanisms that like, like would produce that. I, why, I don't think there's an ideal. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yes, yeah, so something in the sense of like a controlled burn where you know what's going on, but at the same time. Yeah. You know, and then, uh, and then in the question of like, how you live this out with friends and stuff like that, like, I mean, yeah, at, at its core is what we're talking about, trying to have communities where um, there is a love of conversation, a love of change, a love of like, and not like an orientation around an, an answer. I guess like any, any friendship group that's like that is probably, I think, healthy whether it's a poker, your poker team or your, you know, the people you meet in the coffee shop. Um, so yeah, but um, you know, again, it's about, and we need more communities like that because see in America at the moment, I don't know how many of you are in America at the moment, but obviously things are very tense here. And I live in Los Angeles and things feel very tense here. And um, if, we, if we can't create spaces where we can kind of like have uncomfortable conversations with each other and it feels like it's very hard to do you know even among friends 
at the moment people are, are a little bit careful about what they can and can't say um, that that I think that could lead to you know that that contributes to the tensions that we're feeling um, that I have was a related question to to Nathan um, I, I um, want to start uh, the last supper and start doing that um, for for a year so I started making lists of who I would invite, how, who we would invite, and I, I spoke to my wife about it, and she's um, she reacted very negatively because she said, "Look, I know you've gone through your deconstruction, and you sort of in a, you look like you're in a good place and everything, but I am in the midst of it, and I hate where I am, and I hate um, losing the faith that I had." And um, I would never want to do that to anyone else, um, any of our friends. And uh, I didn't really, because I'm standing at the other side and, and I know it's, it's worth going through that. I didn't know what to say to her. So maybe you can, you can give me some advice. Sally's already wrong with All right, I've just got, I muted them. That's okay, go ahead. Yeah, so it's a, so so I sort of answer, answered answered um, but it would be good to just know what to what to actually say because it's not really about uh, pushing someone, but it is it is sort of throwing throwing something into into someone's maybe they've never thought of it. They've been a happy Christian all their lives, and all of a sudden you introduce these strange strange ideas to them, or just something that that just um, puts throws them off balance, and you don't really know like. Uh, I'm not an expert to guide them to the right place. And, and you don't really want to, it's not the alpha course where you're guiding them to, to, to a certain place. So, so maybe you can just... Um... No, totally. Um, and th this is why actually I set up the, the Last Supper is potentially because I wanted something that was kind of playful and fun and not off-putting and not preachy and not... So like, so for example, the first lot of guests that I brought to the Last Supper were people who I think the people that I knew would, would enjoy having a meal with. Uh, so there was one guy called, what was it Bishop Pat Buckley? I think his name, I don't I wonder if he's still alive, but he was a bishop in Northern Ireland who was very, um, uh, I mean, maybe got the name wrong, maybe Pat Buckley sounds like someone more famous. Whoever it was, is in Northern Ireland, he was a gay bishop uh, I don't think he was a bishop, somebody, he was a rogue bishop in the Catholic Church, but he did this really interesting work. He's, and um, I thought, oh yeah, people will love to talk to him. And then there's a guy who's big in the humanist society, who was just quite well known in Belfast and a bit of a personality. And then we got a politician, but it was like, it was a case of, yeah, the Last Supper, people hopefully should get a vibe that, yeah, this is not trying to get you anywhere in fact it can't because every every month is a different person so like there's no kind of ideological thing the playfulness of it like that's that was important to me is that people kind of like realize that this is fun this food and drink you're not supposed to necessarily agree with each other in fact it's the last supper of the person if we don't like them so you you know your wife she's you know she's in that place where she's going yeah this, this, i don't want to kind of like throw myself into something like absolutely crazy but you know, I would say that that the idea of, of the something like the Last Supper is to try to try to precisely create a non-threatening environment, and um, uh, 
So I don't know whether you like, what would your friends think? Do you think some of the people you know would feel funny about it? Cause I kind of go, then they wouldn't come. Like in one sense. Well, <laughs> no, but I think, I think you're right to just start with, um, just start with non-threatening people. Don't, you don't have to go invite the chairman of the atheist society or something. Just fun, have a, keep it fun. I think that's good enough, good enough advice. And we, we had like, so we had the dinner manners, but the reason for the dinner manners was mostly playful. So like, there was a couple of things like, you know, like, you know, listen to people, let, let everybody speak and don't talk with your mouth full type thing. But, but there was all of these little things that were designed to kind of make it very unthreatening to people. Um, and even the fact it's called the Last Supper has a religious terminology. So there is also a way to, to genuinely go, there's, there is something actually also within the Christian tradition about this. It's the Last Supper. It's, it's a ch just like Christ challenges us. We're, getting, we're going to be challenged by other people. So yeah, it's all about the framing. And if you need any help with that, drop me an email. Use any of my um, graphics if you want to use the Last Supper graphics. Uh, I might have the Last Supper dinner manners. You might want to borrow. But you basically, uh, if you can make people know this is playful, it's fun, and after they've done one or two, like you say, they will realize that not only is this not threatening, but it's, it's fun and it's transformative, I would hope. So I'm really excited to hear that you're thinking of doing that. That's brilliant. <laughs> My church actually did something like this accidentally. So they created something they called Episcopite. So you go meet at a bar and you talk. And we started talking about all these different subjects. Nothing was off the table. And anybody could come and bring whoever they wanted. And it subtly changed into something like what I've seen The Last Supper described as. And we had people who, like my partner, were atheists and would actually come to that and thought it was very interesting, the conversations. And then he ended up dubbing it Heretic Club or something like that. But, you know, you can have things like that naturally develop too, I think, if you just provide, you know, a nice, safe atmosphere. That's, yeah, that's very true because I've said this before, but yeah, we do, you don't even have to say what it is. Like it's, um, people will trust you. You know, say you're, you've got a group, people might trust you, you've got their, their, their trust. And then, you know, you just kind of do it. You just kind of, it just kind of happens. So yeah, that's, that's cool. Um, we're coming up to quarter past. So do you want to, any quick fire, anybody who hasn't had a chance or to ask a question or anyone who has, but it's a burning question, this is your chance. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. You know? Hi, Peter. Um, <clears throat> I'm Arturo from Southern California. Um, my question was, how does the uh, idea that lack and contradiction is part of reality itself similar or different to Scott Peck's principle of life is hard and it's about accepting and transcending that truth. Um, or is it? Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, funny, you know, I, I got a lot of respect for Scott Peck. I actually haven't read him for, for a long, long time. So um, I can't speak too much to him, but he is therapeutically trained. He comes from that thing. So I would imagine that there's definitely a lot of stuff in Scott Peck that I think is very valuable and good. So, but I can't speak to him precisely because I haven't read. I wrote, I read, I read the Road Less Traveled many, many years ago, and I remember really enjoying it. Um, but so the yeah, the question is in terms of the contradiction thing is is whether a person is saying that the hardship 
can either be kind of overcome ultimately or whether it doesn't really exist and we need to see through it or whether it's it's saying something about about that would be the heart of reality and of course we can get over our concrete troubles like all of our contingent troubles we can get over but this idea is that they're at the heart there will always be trouble there'll always be a kind of like um a not at oneness that that's the kind of paratheological radical and hegelian kind of model on the other side you have notions of you know maybe maybe hardships exist in this life and we'll get over it in the next life or they exist and we can get over it by obviously having the right beliefs or practices or property um so that's always the question i have is when i come to a thinker i'm asking myself um are they uh you know do they have this notion of the kind of the quantum nature of reality or not and i don't know about scott peck but only because I, and when I read him, it was definitely pre my, my intellectual journey. Can, can you speak to Scott Peck very briefly? Like, do you, have you read him much? I mean, where do you think he's coming from? Actually, I read him quite a number of years ago, but um, just in, been introduced to your pyrotheology. And, it, uh, and thinking about it, it kind of reminded me of that principle, uh, basically, that... Um, uh, uh, about you listening to you talk about your contradictions and the deadlocks and the uh, uh, yeah so yeah the, the difference I mean the big thing is and I don't know about Scott Peck but is whether the yeah the person is saying the hardship is um, uh, a necessary evil or a result of a fall or a result of whatever or someone saying that that there is a type of disturbance in reality that that generates everything. So that's that's the difference. Because um, some, this is, but there's a lot of thinkers who helped me in this process, but who didn't go as far as Hegel. So um, there's definitely various thinkers who who started to embrace suffering, doubt, unknowing, complexity. When I met these thinkers, these mystics in books that were embracing doubt, complexity, hardship, struggle, they they got me on the journey. And then eventually I was able to kind of get to these thinkers who gave me a way of understanding, um, not just that these are contingent problems that we have to face because of a problem, but actually um, they're a reflection of something even deeper. Thank you. If I can ask another question, you, says, you say we yearn because of our sense of lack. Uh, and you also mentioned, I think, is the point is not to get rid of the drive, but to rob it of its of its sting. Um, so, how do we rob it of its sting? What can we do? Um, is there any practical tips or advice on how to do that, and what does that look like um, in civil terms? Yeah, I mean, my my first tip is don't watch the last two episodes of a series that you like. Right, there you go. That's my concrete. <laughs> when I mentioned person of interest, I was like, oh yeah, that is a, that's my way. That's one of my ways of, um, of robbing the drive of its thing. So in psychoanalysis, now this in practice is how do you do this? But in theory, it is coming back to um, the Blade Runner example. 
it is the drive has a sting when we're constantly trying to overcome the lack. We're constantly trying to get the house or the property or the person or the whatever that's going to get rid of the lack. That's the sting where we're always trying to get rid of the nothing. We're trying to fill it. We're trying to pay the debt, fill the debt. Um, to, rob, to rob drive of its sting means that you kind of, you, you, you don't get the satisfaction, but you find a certain satisfaction in the dissatisfaction. You, you, you weave satisfaction and dissatisfaction together in a, in a more, uh, uh, in a better way. And again, sports being an example where people like sports precisely because loss and victory are intertwined. Um, or, or computer games, somebody texted me today and said, or it was a message, said that computer games are a perfect example of this. And they said, like, when I was young, I was playing a computer game and I put it into God mode. I got a cheat that me, it meant that I could, like, play the game without dying or without any threat. He says it was so boring that um, I've never done that since. Right? I was going, oh, yeah, because computer games work with satisfaction and loss. You get to a certain stage and you move forward. But when you put it into God mode, like, very quickly, you just have fullness without loss intertwined and it becomes boring. So that's, that's what I mean by robbing death of its sting, is that the lack is integrated in. And C.S. Lewis said it beautifully with joy when he said, joy is not having heaven, but the aroma of heaven that you do not have. It's uh, in his book, Surprised by Joy. So joy is a certain pleasure in not having the utopia um, in, in, in a kind of C.S. Lewis kind of way. And I think that's, that's what we're talking about. I think that's, a th and joy is a theological concept. That's what I'm always trying to argue with the whole course is that when we talk about the self-alienated God, we are talking about loss and plentitude are both within the divine life or within the life of the universe itself. Thank you so much. I'll see you then. All right, uh, here, one, one more, if I'll give it five seconds, anybody's got a burning question, so. All right, thank you so much for doing this. What I'm gonna do is, um, I'm actually gonna release the course, I think, uh, starting next week for free onto YouTube, because um, I think, you know, it's a good way to kind of introduce people to this stuff. Uh, so if you know of anybody who would like the material, it'll be going on my YouTube. Uh, appreciate you being involved and um, 